What's going on, friends? Welcome to another episode of Family by Heart. I, of course, am your host, Dustin Gruss. Uh, you may know me from my other podcast, Coming and Stuck, a Step Up to Greatness podcast, but have recently switched gears and with this podcast specifically, I'm focusing on more helping the families going through the fertility, foster care, and adoption journeys. And today's episode is a special one because I have my lovely wife, Leanne, with me. And this actually because we're sharing our story uh, to kind of bring everyone up to speed is actually going to be about a two-part episode. So today's first part is going to be more on our meeting all the way up through where we decided to become foster parents. Uh, so where we met, started dating, marriage, our infertility, and then where we eventually became decided to start taking foster classes. Um, but before we get into that, I do want to make one quick uh, correction, uh, omission, I should say. Um, in the first episode, I mistakenly said that in Cuyahoga County alone, there's 10 to 12,000 kids in foster care. That was egregiously wrong. I don't know why I thought that when I realized that the last heard the number in Ohio was somewhere around 11,000. Uh, and actually, since the last episode aired, I've looked up the numbers and it's more around 16,000 kids are in foster care in Ohio. And then the number of um, children in Cuyahoga County that are looking for permanent homes to be adopted is around 800. Foster care is obviously over a thousand. But I was definitely way off on that number of 10 to 12,000 kids in Coward County, nowhere near that, but 16,000 in Ohio and over 800 looking for homes, permanent homes, adoptive parents in Calgary County and well over a thousand kids in Calgary County looking for or in the foster system. But with that being said, without further ado, we'll get into part one of our story, my episode with my wife, Leanne Gruss. Enjoy, and you'll hear the rest of the interview a little bit later on this week. We're born into our names, but we become family by heart. During my wife and my journey through infertility, foster care, and a recent adoption, we searched for and relied on a lot of help. If you're on a similar journey, then this podcast is for you. Or maybe you're curious about the process or looking to support someone on their journey. We got you covered. Each episode has a story to inspire and or resources to turn to. We're all family here. This is Family by Heart. What's going on, everyone? Here with a very special guest for this week. And I say very special because she means the world to me is my lovely wife, Leanne. Sweetie, thank you so much for being here and doing this with me. It's my honor. Well, I wanted to have you on because it is our story. This family by heart, you are a 
huge part of my heart and uh, the better part of my family. Like this is, this story doesn't happen without you. And so that's why I'm so thankful that you're here and willing to do this. And we're probably going to have a lot to talk about. And I kind of gave you a rundown on a list of things and just go with what you feel comfortable talking about and you know, we'll go from there. But um, from what I understand, when we, before we even got together, you were kind of told about me before I even moved back from Ohio. What was just a little bit of what you were told about my arrival? Well, I don't know if I truly knew your your first name, you were just referred to as the Gruss boy, hmm. the Gruss boy, that Gruss boy. And I think they had a few people that were trying to get us together, but it just never worked out. I don't, I don't remember all the specifics, but I was told that you had just moved back from Florida, that you were um, getting into personal training, that you had done some mud runs and like <laughs> fitness you know, 5K, 10K kind of things, um, that you were very nice. And I didn't know your family really at all, but I knew of your family at the church. And I knew that they that your parents were kind people, and I couldn't have imagined that you would not have been a kind person. And I know a couple of times people had, oh, you know, I think he's going to be there. He's going to be at this. He's going to be at that. And I thought, well, I'm going because I'm going not because I might meet him there. Um, so one time I went to a spaghetti dinner and you weren't there. And I was like, oh, okay. And I assumed you were out of town for something. So I assumed that meant you weren't going to be at church the next day. And I went to church that morning. I used to teach Sunday school, the senior high Sunday school at the 925 service and attend the 1105 service. And I was talking to some friends in the worship center in between services. And I just heard my friend yell, Julian. And I turned around and I thought, Oh crap. There's that gross boy. There's that gross boy. I had my hair in a ponytail and, you know, just didn't feel I was presenting my best self. Um, but I remember talking to you in a group and then suddenly church was starting and everyone had walked away and it was just us just standing there talking about, I don't even remember exactly what, just us talking and connecting. Well, that's the funny thing is you mentioned those mud <laughs> runs and the 10Ks and 5Ks because that's one of the things that I was told about you is that you had just done a warrior dash and that you were into running and that you had a friend that was a guy, but you were just friends, much like I just came from a sit living situation where I had a female roommate, but we were just friends, more like brother, sister. But I'm pretty sure what we were talking about, part of what we were talking about was me talking about, oh, I love doing mud runs and you just kind of nodding your head in agreement. And I think that was part of it. But yeah, I remember there being a group of people around us and all of a sudden they were all gone. And it was like, oh, okay, well, that went really well. And I remember your smile. I remember your smile, your haircut, and your shirt. 
Okay. <laughs> yes. I remember your smile, your haircut, and your shirt because your smile was very warm and inviting. I felt comfortable talking to you. Your haircut because I thought, hmm, I don't know about that. And then your shirt because it was different. It was a different pattern. And I tend to be drawn to different or unique things. So I liked your shirt. I was like, okay, this is cool. Not just a regular button up. It had a cool pattern to it. Okay. Yes. Yes. Okay. So yes. And I believe I was just nodding along to your stories because while I had done a warrior dash and I had done the Cleveland rock and roll mini marathon, um, I did the warrior dash because I didn't necessarily have a reason not to, but I was trying to get into running and my friends were doing that. So I knew if I didn't make it through something, at least I had somebody to drag, drag my body to the finish line. <laughs> Um, in the mini marathon, Gavin DeGraw, which is uh, an artist I'm a fan of, he was playing the finish line. And I thought, wow, I would pay the amount I was paying for the entry fee for like a ticket to see him. So I thought, well, sure, why not? There you go. So, uh, and those um, were the only two uh, of those types of things I've, I've done and really don't aspire to do anymore so i guess <laughs> you could kind of say it was the wonder bra of of setups because i i showed one way and then was totally different i mean i was cute and all don't get me oh, wrong yeah. but yeah i didn't yeah. uh yeah I, I, I don't i run my mouth really well but not so much races i like that you use the term wonder bra <laughs> instead of uh, catfish uh, written down for the notes and stuff yeah yeah so we had our first date for lunch and we on our second and third date were on the same day. And the second date we both kind of, well, you actually more opened up on the second date, kind of told me a little bit more of your family history. And we both went into the fact that we uh, were interested in having children, that they were non-negotiable. Now, yes. one of the questions I've asked my other couples going through their fertility journey um, which I want to know kind of your story on is your desire to have kids. Was that family pressure at all? Or was that always just your own intent? Did, did any of that come from family history? I want to back up a little bit. And um, I know some could say that, you know, it's not really proper date etiquette, you know, to talk about something so serious so soon. But I was at a point in my life where, I was only dating with a purpose. I wasn't dating to date or dating to get a free dinner or dating to get a story. Like I was dating with a purpose. And that meant, you know, I was, I was in my early thirties and that meant laying, laying it all out mm -hmm. early on. Because if this, if you weren't somebody that I could see a future with, I didn't want to waste your time. I didn't want to waste my time. Um, because I had come to a point where I truly felt I was better off by myself than, dating people who weren't right for me. I had scars from the past. I didn't want any more. So I, I laid it all out because we had, you know, we, we had a decent car ride, you know, where it was nothing to do but talk. So um, I never, while I had family pressure in the sense that I had family members asking me like, mm. you know, when are you getting married? When are you having kids? And stuff like that. I... I felt from an early age, my mom was um, 21 when she had me 
and in some ways I got to kind of grow up with my mom and in the sense that I consider 21 to be a younger mother um so my assumption honestly was that I was going to walk the same path that I was going to be a young mom a stay-at-home mom um that that was you know the path that I thought I was going to be on and as I got older and realized okay I'm not going to be a young mom but I can I can still be a mom and then I got my 30s and I thought okay well I'm doing pretty good on my own am I supposed to do this on my own like you know (laughs) but I always knew I wanted to be a mom like I was that kid that would like put a balloon up their shirt and pretend like they you know were were having a baby or you know things like that so I while I got questions from friends and family I didn't feel pressured from my friends and family kind of backtracking to your point about <laughs> laying it all on the line was interesting almost risky move the fact that i'd only been home for like a month when you and i met and we're going on our first dates but uh clearly it was something that paid off because i was also at that point in my life in my early 30s and i was also at the point where i too always kind of envisioned being a parent and you know I had enjoyed my time as an uncle and as being an uncle is one of the reasons I moved back from Florida to be a more involved uncle and then being the cool like second cousin once removed or whatever the younger kids and the extended family but yeah, I like that you laid it all on the line, and and we did have that long ride. We went, we had the lunch where you kind of put it all out there, and then the car ride to the Columbus, which was a couple hour drive away for a concert, and then driving back, it was just two of us, and I kind of put it all out there, and and uh, you know, ten months later, we were engaged. Definitely some milestones in between, like. You know, how close you got with my family, my nieces and nephews looking at you as, as Aunt Leanne in the meantime. And, you know, I think we said I love you before it was even one month of dating. And I just knew. Yeah. I just knew. And I, I think because, because my, my heart was set on dating for a purpose and because that I'd had a lot of long-term relationships or short-term relationships, but that I had had enough first and second dates to know, okay, no, yes, no, yes. But that was both-sided. It wasn't like I was just dating people and, you know, and, and like it was the same where people were like, you know, it just I'm just not feeling it. Okay, like you're not going to like everybody. You're not going to love everybody. I'm fine with that. So I... I knew the red flags that I had learned from before and I had scars from relationships from before. So I knew you not only, you not only intrigued me and wanted me to, and made myself want to be a better Leanne, you were also working on yourself to be your best Dustin. And I felt like that was something that we could support and help each other grow into that. Mm -hmm. And you 
you know, I was big into my faith. I was doing a lot at my church and that was a big part of my life. And granted, we met at church. It's not common for 30 something year old men just to walk into church. Um, but you were also willing to work on your faith and mm-hmm. explore it. And that's not a common thing for men in their 30s to just say, okay, yeah, we'll just we'll explore this. I'm going to see what this is about. And, yeah. you know, wanting to do devotions or pray or read a Bible. Like, so just early on, I felt my heart being knitted towards your heart. I think a big part with that and the ex- exploration of faith and everything was I, because of what I had heard about you before we met and stuff and hearing that you were a table parent Logos, that was always the fun one and how involved you were with the church and how much faith meant to you. And I remember admitting to you through some texts like early on that I was pretty intimidated by that because during my seven years living in Florida, I did not go to church at all, except for, you know, a couple of times when I was visiting my family coming home, I would, if they were going to church, I would go with them like on that Sunday. But other than that, I was not involved in it at all. But you diffused me by saying, you know, I'm no way a perfect person. I'm just trying to be the best me I can be. And that rawness and reality of it like helped ease any concern I had with that because I had been in relationships before that there was faith was in it like I was going to church with that girlfriend's family and stuff and they were looking for me to be the leader when it came to faith and stuff like be the male figure and the and the male leader and I wasn't as convicted in that belief as much then and then that relationship also went sour and that person went the total opposite direction of their faith once they hit a milestone and and that kind of turned me off to faith in a way too that they were looking for me to be a leader and then once they hit a milestone 21 and started living a different lifestyle. It was like, okay, that's, that just seemed like a little switcheroo pulled on me there. So fair enough. Um, so yeah, 10 months engaged, 10 months later we were married. And then it was about eight months into our marriage, uh, after about trying and trying and having fun trying, (laughs) (laughs) um, that we had an interesting day. It was your first day at your new job at the church. Let's back up a little bit. So before we before we got married, I had talked to my doctor because I knew that I knew I was 34 when we got married. And uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, but at 35, apparently your um, uterus is no longer uh, young, and you have now hit uh, advanced maternal age, which is the legitimate term that my um, GYN used, that when I hit 35, I would be advanced maternal age, and it could be harder to get pregnant, 
and all of that. So I had this, the whole conversation with her knowing, okay, once we get married, like I'm aware I'm no spring chicken. So we're going to, we're going to get, you know, we're going to get on top of things as quickly as possible to ensure that we can have as many kids as we can. (laughs) (laughs) So we, you know, I knew, I knew how I knew how to track things and what to look for and bought all the ovulation kits on bulk online and pregnancy <laughs> tests and bulk online. And, you know, I was ready to go because I, this is what I desired. This is what I wanted. And, um, I remember the doctor saying, okay, well, normally we would give you a year of trying without a pregnancy before we would do tests, but we're going to give you six months because you're getting so close to that age, you know? And, I thought, okay, well, but everything in my life had worked out in some way, maybe not the way I wanted it, but everything I had wanted in some way worked out or I achieved what I was looking for <coughs> in a different way. So I didn't at first think like this won't happen. And like the first month went by and the second month went by and I just kind of knew in my gut something was wrong. And I had secretly hoped it was you and not me (laughs) because I didn't know how I would handle it if it were me. Mm -hmm. And I remember calling and making the appointment, you know, leaving the message for the doctor, Hey, nothing is happening. Like we're doing, I'm I'm doing everything I'm supposed to. I'm testing when I'm supposed to, like, I don't know what else we could be doing. And she said, all right, well, let's just run the test just to make sure. So we know exactly what we're dealing with. And, uh, so we went in and, and did the test. There were two different tests for both of us. Um, and they call you, they won't tell you, the, at least our doctor wouldn't tell us the results over the phone. So we had to go into the doctor, which was um, somebody completely different than, our, than my normal doctor because it was a fertility doctor. And I just remember being on edge. It was the first day um, at my new job. And I work at the church. They were understanding that I, you know, I couldn't switch this appointment. I had to make that appointment in the morning. And I remember going up the stair, up the elevator to the right floor. And I remember just sitting there walking in. And you know how you can tell when somebody's got something not great to tell you? Yeah. I don't even remember that doctor's name. And I'm sure because she does this all the time, like she just has no bedside manner. Like this is common, does it five times a day to tell people their hopes and dreams are smashed. But I remember her turning to you first. It was a very cold room. It was a very like sterile room. I remember her turning to you and saying, you know, things look good. Like a few of your samples, you know, might be a little off, but like there was nothing, you know, that came up in your test that would indicate that you could not father children. And I just remember her turning, swiveling in her chair just slightly and goes to me and says, but you, and I could just tell by her voice that this was not, <laughs> this is not going to be the happy, you know, time that I wanted. And she just said that, um, I had diminished ovarian reserve, which meant my egg supply, um, was gone. And I had never had problems with, you know, my period. I had no, no issues up to that point that would indicate to me that, I wouldn't be able to have children. So 
I, of course, immediately start crying and things just whirling in my head. What did I do? Is this my fault? Did I wait too long? I thought I was doing the right thing, writing for the right person. And, you know, did I wait, you know, too long to have kids and I, you know, hurt myself? Uh, Should I, you know, I had made mistakes in the past with my health and, you know, did I do something to myself then that, you know, is now I'm paying the price. And I started asking these questions and she had said, no, that my levels were so low. um, I likely never would have been able to have children that my best fertility years would have been in my teens. And I did not know what to do with that information because even though I knew in my heart, something was wrong. And I think I knew in my heart, it was me. You don't know how it's you. Mm. And that's when I started to do a little more research and found out that, uh, women are born with all the eggs they're going to have. And a third of them are under mature and will never become a mature viable egg. A third of them are over mature and will never be a viable egg. So you're really dealing with like a third of your eggs from birth that will reach maturity. Now that doesn't mean you've got, you know, 10,000 eggs and you menstruate X amount of them. And so you still have all these viable eggs, like, no, through life things happen um, to those eggs, to your supply. Um, so we were like, okay, well, so what are our choices? And she said, well, I give you like less than a 5% chance to conceive on your own. Um, given your age and the situation, uh, I wouldn't even wait a month if you're going to go IVF because like your eggs are dwindling. We need to get on this now. And you and I had decided beforehand, before we got the test results, that um, if they did not go in our favor and that we were going to be able to conceive naturally, that IVF was not the way we wanted to go. Not because we don't believe in it or that we don't support it. Um, it just wasn't something we we knew that it was a large cost. We knew that um, it would take a toll on my body. Um, so it just wasn't something that we wanted to do. We also knew because there's cancer in my family, breast cancer, um, that that my breast specialist was not supportive of us doing anything that would require me to take additional hormones, which IVF would. Um, so we we were pretty firm on that. Um, there were there was one other type of intervention that we could do in IUI, which was um, basically them taking your semen, cleaning them up, shooting them up me, and hoping you know, shooting them as close to the egg as possible, giving them the best shot they, they could. Um, and we did an opt for that. We thought, well, that still seems like something that given the situation and given the fact that I didn't have viable eggs, it just didn't seem like something we wanted to do. And I just remember like sitting there hearing all of this and thinking, I just need to get to the car because I'm going to have a a full body breakdown and I want to do it in my car, not in this room, in this elevator, in this building. So I can remember getting, thanking her because, I mean, she took the time to tell us that, getting the elevator and I can remember holding my tears in so like... I could feel the tears burning down my face, but like, I didn't want to make any noise. And like my whole body, like shaking as I was crying in the elevator and it could not go fast enough. And then sitting in the car and just, just 
it all came out. Just yeah. all my emotion came out in the car. And seeing you cry and selfishly in those moments, I would like to say that I I would like to say that part of me was thinking, oh my gosh, like he's in pain too. But I was just in such shock and hearing that it was me. I could not get over that part. I could not get over the fact that it was my fault that I was ruining my dreams and your dreams and our family's dreams. And like, that was what stuck out to me was that this was my fault. This was my fault. I would say I, I was not crying because I was in pain too. I was crying because of your pain, knowing what you must have been feeling or imagining what you must have been feeling because I, I don't think it really hit me like to be frank until we talked and eliminated other options later on but I think it was more of in the time that I'd known you in our you know 10 months of dating, 10 months being engaged, you know, like, and then eight months being married, like just knowing how much pressure you put on yourself. I think just knowing that you were blaming yourself and just knowing the pain that you were feeling, it hurt me knowing that you were probably in that much pain. And then as far as the IVF goes, did they say like that, okay, we had a 5% chance on our own. But if we did IVF, it would only give us maybe like another 5% would. Yeah, I think our total chances, I think our total chances of conceiving naturally were 12%. And that is not a high percentage. (laughs) And knowing that, knowing the money, knowing the the hormones that were going to be popped into me, the fact that if a pregnancy did not result during that cycle, my um, chances of breast cancer increased. So my already heightened, you know, risk of breast cancer was there, but now there was an even larger risk with that. Um, It all, it just, it wasn't, it wasn't the way to go. So I briefly for a moment, because when you are faced with, something and you don't know what (laughs) you don't you think you know how you react and then it hits you and then you realize that that's not how you're going to react um i looked up just information and costing and things like that for um egg adoption sperm adoption um, embryo adoption just to have that thinking okay well if we do go this way because again the, I think that one of the biggest things about the, for me, I wanted to carry a child. Mm-hmm. It was just something I always wanted to experience. It was something I just knew my body could do. It was something that I knew I could go through childbirth. Like I knew I could do all that. And so I was pulling at straws of any way to make this happen. And that is not that on top of that, the cost of adopting one of the, you know, a, bits and pieces of this and then to still have to go through the hormones and everything for my body. Um, 
I mean, one round would have almost been how much our house was. <laughs> like it was, you know, it was, it was just more than it wasn't, it just didn't seem like the path for us. I didn't feel called to it. I didn't feel led to it. I didn't feel like this is obviously the answer we're looking for. And I did not, even though my eggs were the problem, I know I would not have been okay having somebody else's egg, but your sperm. I knew for me, I was not going to be okay with that. I know other couples that have done that and, and kudos to them that they are able to, to come to terms with that. That was just something I knew if your DNA was in it, I wanted my DNA to be in it as well. So if my DNA wasn't in it, I didn't want your DNA, (laughs) you know, either. Um, As selfish as that may sound, that's how I felt, you know? So, ah, I think we took time to figure out what we did and didn't want. And we kind of came to the term uh, of it was just going to be you and me. Yeah. Well, on on the other side of that coin of not wanting it to be my DNA and stuff on there, there was also that brief period. It was probably after a baby announcement from someone else where we had a really rough night where you basically were crying and screaming and trying to tell me to leave. You were basically trying to get me in and out. And that was probably one of the lowest moments I'd ever felt. Um, Probably one of the most helpless moments. But I also think it was probably a pivotal moment for us because... Again, on the other side of the coin of you not wanting to have just my DNA, I also didn't want that. I didn't want you to think or carry the burden of it wasn't you can blame your body all you want. So, But to me, it wasn't you were infertile. It was we were infertile. That you made we that were... clear from the beginning that this was not my fault. This was not me. This we is... could not have a baby. We could not have a baby. Yes. And and and, and so... I wanted you to leave because I gave you an out because I feel I presented one way. I feel this was, you know, this was more than I did a warrior dash and have no aspirations <laughs> to, to run again. This was, we both said on date two, Kids were a non-negotiable. If mm-hmm. either of us had said in that moment, I don't want kids, it would have ended right there. Yeah. And here I was taking back my non-negotiable, saying, I can't give you what you want. Just like, I won't be mad. I will understand. I will not blame you. Leave. I'm giving you your out now. Because I did not, could not, be the reason that your hopes and dreams did not happen. I could not do it. I could not bear that weight. And I felt that's how I felt in the moment. I felt like I had let you down. I felt I had let our families down. I felt I'm like, oh my gosh, like <sighs> I remember we have one amazing friend. Um well we have multiple amazing friends, but I have one friend who um told us about their pregnancy in the sweetest, kindest way. 
And I just remember coming home and just laying on the kitchen floor because I was starting to understand that I could be happy for others, but sad for myself. And I was so thankful to have a friend who, who, you know, was willing to tell us in that way. But I could not, I got home and it's like I couldn't function. I, you know, mm -hmm. and I remember another pregnancy announcement that you lovingly <coughs> had to be the one to tell me. And um, I just remember locking myself in the bathroom because I couldn't, like, we had like four in a row. And, yeah. you know, it's one thing when, like, you're on a diet and somehow somebody brings in donuts and now here's a <laughs> cake and somebody has ice cream. You're like, goodness gracious, how much can one person, with, you know, say no to? But being told that the only thing you've ever really wanted as an adult, now you can't have, but seeing all these people that you love and care about getting it, it was very difficult. And yeah. that pregnancy announcement came at like, not the worst time, but like a hard time. And I just remember sitting in there just crying, thinking, oh my gosh, like, how will I ever do this? I'm never going to be able to do this. I'm yeah. never going to get over this. I am that my life has stopped right here. I'm never going to be able to move past this. And I remember opening the door. And again, selfishly, my thought wasn't how is Dustin handling this? My thought was how am I handling this? And I opened the door and you were laying outside the bathroom door. You weren't even necessarily talking to me at that point. You were just trying to just be there for me. And I remember opening the door and seeing you there. And thinking, Leanne, you have got to get your shit together. Because life is not over. And you have somebody who loves you with all of their heart. And has made it clear to you that this is not your fault. And that they are in this with you. And that was a turning point for me in my head and my heart. Because I thought... This, there is still going to be a life past this moment. Like there will still be a life past this diagnosis, but I have to, like, I had to start seeing that. And I had to start seeing that there are ways to cope with this. Yep. And here we are five years later and pregnancy announcements still sting a little mm -hmm. just because they do it's still something i can't do it's still something i can't have it's still something i'm positive i would have been able to endure and, and don't have but i have been able to find the pure joy and be happy for friends and family and be able to say like genuinely truly like i am so excited you know the last one you're like are you okay for real and i was like but no i am really okay you know but that's been five years of that. Yeah. You know, I went to my first baby shower and I think I've only gone to three in mm -hmm. the five years because that's something that every person, every person that has trauma or scar, they have something that is a little bit harder for them to do because of that. Um, and baby showers are, are my thing, you know, and I went by myself, which was also a huge thing. The, the ones I went to, I had a friend with me um, because, again, I have awesome people who love me and have been able to say, if you want to bring a friend to come with you, like, that's okay. Or, you know, they've also said, 
I understand you can't come. I would love you to be there, but I understand like no hard feelings. The first one that I, I, the first invitation I got, I had to say, I'm, I love you, but I cannot do this. I'm not going to be the person who ruins your shower because I've locked myself in the bathroom closet because I can't handle my emotions. Like, you know, it'd be different if I was laying outside (laughs) someone else's bathroom closet. Yes. Yes. So, um, I'm thankful for the the support that we have. I'm thankful for uh, the friends and family that check up on you, that check up on me, that understand that we can love them and still need time or separation on certain things. People who check in and, hey, uh, I saw so-and-so posted on Facebook. Like, you all right? You doing okay? Yeah. Like, to have that kind of support is... I mean, can't put into words, mm-hmm. you know, how thankful and appreciative I am. Well, speaking of support, uh, like you were starting to allude to, was we went through a period where we were feeling content being in just you and I. We saw a grief counselor. We went to Disney uh, in, towards the end of February, beginning of March one year to kind of start the year off on a better note. I'm not much of a spontaneous person, but that trip was nothing but <laughs> spontaneity. I just wanted to feel something fun and good and happy. And I thought, <laughs> well, why not go to Disney? And you know what? And it was interesting enough, too, because most people, a lot of people think Disney is a family place. And you go with kids. And and I've heard it talked about on the radio, like, what adults really like going to Disney? But we had a great time. Oh, I'd go back to Disney just. Oh, as absolutely. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And then the fact that we were in a period of being content and we were seeing the parents with the what the hell did we do look Hot, on their sweaty faces, kids, sweaty kids, meltdowns, meltdowns and, sea of strollers outside of a ride or something. And we would just give each other a high five, like, all right, we, we dodged that one mm-hmm. stuff. But. There were still some pretty emotional moments there. We had a, a Disney magic moment um, where we just asked someone to tell us where the best seats would be for the fireworks and laser show for Star Wars. And and they ended up getting us VIP passes and into a special area and, and got to do a VIP meet with Chewbacca, which was huge being the Star Wars fan that you are. So that was pretty cool, but um, we also saw a grief counselor that was huge in our healing and and all that. Yep. Um, and I think it was huge not because they were some magic person and just had all the answers and could you know quote unquote fix the situation, but because there were it was like that room was easier to be open and vulnerable. Because it was like neutral territory instead of being in our living room, our kitchen, mm-hmm. our bedroom. Like it was neutral territory so I could say things or you could say things that um, for whatever reason we didn't feel comfortable saying to each other at home. Mm-hmm. We could say there, which was vital to us being able to take steps forward into healing and stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and anyone that ever knocks counseling and therapy, please just... Give that, sure. give that up and go. Like, yes. It's, it's huge. It's huge. Um, so we had a time where we were content and it was going to be just us. And then we hit 
I had a whole list of things I wanted to purchase. I wanted to buy a kayak, an electric bike, <laughs> all these things. Oh, suddenly she like, wanted to be adventurous <laughs> and active again. You know? <laughs> she wanted to put the sports bra back on, apparently. I just thought, well, you know, if we're not, it's just going to be us then. You know, I had visions of like girls weekends, going out with my friends and stuff. And like, yeah, if I was going to make the most of this life. If it wasn't what, if it wasn't going to turn out the way I thought it would, if it wasn't going to look the way I thought it would, then I was going to make the most of it. I was going to do things that I thought this is what I wanted to do. Well, then we hit a summer that things changed. Mm-hmm. Our church is very involved with a program called Royal Family Kids Camp, which takes a 30 to 32 kids that are in the foster system in uh, the county we live in, Calgary County, to uh, a camp where they love on the kids. and um, They just get to experience things that they likely haven't experienced before because of their, their life path, birthday parties and um, giant water slides and... Uh, a quote-unquote grandma and grandpa that reads stories to him every night and uh, it's just an amazing an amazing week and we were asked to be a part of that mm-hmm. um in a variety of ways so we said yes and up to this point i was not open to my heart was not open to fostering or adopting you had shown interest in fostering i was getting there but i was not a hundred percent yet so he dabbled with with the foster care in that way, seeing these kids that just wasn't their fault they were where mm-hmm. they were. It wasn't their fault that they, you know, made the the path that they did. But for me, the big the big part was in September. When we got our Eva. Eva. Uh, Eva. <laughs> Eva is our little angel on earth. She, I truly feel, crossed our path for the sole purpose of opening my heart to loving someone that was not mine. And tell people who Eva is. Eva's our dog. (laughs) (laughs) Eva is our dog. I had met with one of my good friends for lunch and she was, you know, Hey, you guys considering any pets or anything? I said, Oh, Dustin will love a dog, but I'm just not on board yet. She's like, oh, well, you know, I know somebody who is looking to rehome their dog. It's a good dog. They just had a lot of, of animals, you know, and just were, were looking to see if there was another family that might want her. Want her. And I said, well, she showed me a picture and I thought, oh, she was a pretty cute dog. I said, all right, here's the deal. We'll meet her. And if the meeting goes well, we'll take her for the night. And if that goes well, then we'll keep her for the weekend. If that goes well, we'll take a week. And if that goes well, we'll, we'll adopt the dog. Okay. Well, this dog, so help me, her crystal blue eyes. The first night you mocked me because you're like, you were on your phone. You weren't even trying to look at this dog. But honestly, I was trying not to. I didn't want to get attached to this dog. I didn't want to get attached to this dog. She climbed right up on my lap and stuff like that. And the next day, okay, let's go for a family walk. We, you know, took her for a walk in the park, went and got her. And you wanted to hold the leash. I wanted to hold the leash. Okay, okay, okay. And uh, and I'm just sitting back, <laughs> smiling ear to ear, just thinking, oh, she's falling. Here we go. Here we go. And then the part that sold it to me was our poor Eva is terrified of thunderstorms. Terrified. 
terrified. And Leanne, who had been saying prior to this, we will not have a dog that will get up on our furniture. This is not negotiable. We will not have a dog that will get on our furniture. Well, it was like the second night, Eva with us, and there was a thunderstorm. Mind you, it was worse than a thunderstorm that we had just had two weeks earlier where Leanne was terrified asking me to spoon her and hold her because <laughs> she was so scared of the here we are a storm worse than that one and Leanne is like oh my gosh Eva get up here get up here and Leanne is spooning Eva while I'm she just sitting scared. on the edge like okay she was so scared she was so scared she was so scared so yeah. we got her on a Friday she stayed, no, we got her on a Saturday. She uh, stayed the night. And by Wednesday, I had her at the vet getting her checkup and getting her shots. And I'm like, yeah. So I remember texting my friend and saying, okay, she's already, like, I'm not giving her back. <laughs> I'm not giving her back. I don't need the week. Yeah. And that was it. And that dog, oh, Eva, she just opened my heart. She really made me realize, like, I could love something that I didn't. I didn't know I could love. Like she opened my heart to love in a way I didn't know it could love in a capacity. I didn't, I didn't know it could do. Um, and I realized, well, dang, if I can love, this was somebody else's dog. It's not like I had this dog from puppyhood. You know, if I could love somebody else's dog this much, I bet I could love on somebody else's kid. And again, my mind wasn't adoption at that point. My mind was fostering. Like we had a room to spare. We had mm -hmm. love to give okay, maybe we can do this. Maybe maybe we can become foster parents and just stand in the gap for some kids that, that just need safety and security and love for a period of time. Uh, and that's when we decided to start looking into the fostering classes and what direction we wanted to take, whether it be with private, um, private agency or the county. And then kind of figuring out the classes from there. So 